0: recorded live welcome to IAQ radio the voice of the indoor air quality industry yes the rules have changed. Have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio for Friday, February 18th, 2011. Episode 197 comes to you today from Studio C in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, where it is a gorgeous spring day. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z Man. Radio Joe Hughes is teaching a course in Tampa and will be participating today remotely. And at the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak.
1: They think I'm crazy, but they can't help but like me. there, up one here. Got one.
0: For you now. Okay, uh, today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Don Fugler of Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, Halftime, and the Roundup. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after this show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Now we'd like to thank our more key sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
2: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean
0: Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. To contact the show by phone, you can call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. You can also listen live or download the show by going to our website, www.iaqradio.com, and following the instructions that say go to the show. The show is also available from iTunes. Don't forget, you can get your American Board of Industrial Hygiene certification management points. IICRC Continuing Education Credits, or American Council for Academic Certification Renewal Credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quizzes. Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Our email addresses are also on the homepage of iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at ieqtraining.com. win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Congratulations. <laughs> to John Lapotere, Microshield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for answering last week's question, correctly being the first person to correctly identify the Latin prefix myco, M-Y-C-O, as meaning both fungus and wax. The IEQ Radio trivia question for Friday, February 18, 2011, has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. When and why was the Central Mortgage and Housing Corporation created? Don Fugler worked for 25 years doing technical research for Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, known as CMHC. A mechanical engineer, he managed projects in combustion spillage, moisture in buildings, contaminated lands, basement design, attic venting, residential ventilation rates, straw bale construction, energy efficiency, and many other topics. Most of the relevant research is on the website at cmhc.com. Okay, we're gonna turn it over to uh, Joe, uh, good afternoon, thank you for joining us, Don, and Joe's gonna come with the first question. Hello, Don, we have you on the line.
1: And by the way, it's, it's cmhc.ca for the Canadian extension. as it
0: were. Okay, thank you.
3: Good day, and it's great to have you on. We appreciate you joining us, Don. Uh, in during Cliff's introduction, he mentioned that you've been in uh, with CMHC for I guess to, over 25 years now. And prior to that, I know you had done some construction and some air tightness work. And I assume most of that was in the early 80s. The air tightness, you know, over the last 30 years, can you talk to us about what type of advancements we've made with respect to air tightness in homes?
1: Well, we, we have far better air tightness test equipment than what I started with. Um, I had a six-foot fiberglass nozzle on my blower door, and I'd be roaring along the highway with this thing parked on a roof rack and getting strange glances from everyone going by. Um, but now with the, the advances in portability and reliability and the, and all the software, it's really easy to air tightness test a house, and I... You know, I give credit to the manufacturers of the various products to do that. But as far as having houses more airtight than before, there has been a gradual um, increase in the level of airtightness. But in the early 80s, I tested houses that were about one air change per hour at 50. Um, it was The particular house I'm thinking of was out in the country. It was a small house. As soon as I turned my blower door on, it went just up to about 100 pascals, I think I could have tested that house by blowing a straw through an open window and got 50 pascals. It was tiny and tight, and what I'm seeing now is the tightest houses, typically for passive house uh, testing, you know, about 0.6 air changes per hour at 50. We were, we were able to get that back in the early 80s. It's just becoming a little bit more common now, um, 25 years, 30 years later.
3: No... With respect to, you know, we've got a big push on here, at least in the States. I don't know about in Canada, to go back and and tighten up homes and to save energy. And I know, you know, we did that before. We made a lot of mistakes. And and I know that you at CMHC were part of research that helped us to figure out what mistakes we made and what, what we should avoid doing this time around. Can you give our listeners a little overview of the types of things we need to be cautious about when tightening up homes?
1: Sure. Um, Canada's had a couple of programs. One um, called the CHIP program in the 70s where it provoked a lot of the indoor air quality problems that we had to fix through the 80s and 90s and and led us into the sort of Canadian indoor air quality research area. Urea formaldehyde foam insulation was part of that. It was banned in Canada. It led to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of lawsuits. So all that prompted the, um, the indoor air quality research. In the States, uh, from what I can tell them by attending conferences, such as Affordable Comfort that started out of Pittsburgh, there's been a more coherent and um, holistic approach in weatherization so the weatherization agencies and the weatherization training programs have integrated air quality aspects, combustion spillage avoidance, carbon monoxide awareness um, pretty well from the start and it's in their training and I think that um, to a large degree um, the houses uh, that are chain, you know, air tightened by weatherization crews in the states probably have a more knowledgeable crew working on them in terms of air quality than what we had found in Canada.
3: And when when they're doing the air tightening, I'm I'm just curious in your experience since you've done so much of this, where do you find the most leakage? I mean, what, what parts of the home?
1: That's going to vary from one um, region to the next. And um, for instance, in Canada, Uh, To a large degree, a lot of the houses are airtight enough that if you airtighten them further, you have to introduce mechanical ventilation, which is another expense. Um, I know that in a large number of areas in the States, you have a a sizable housing stock, which is really leaky, and you can do a good job of airtightening on them and still not get them too airtight so they can deal with natural infiltration uh, to provide adequate fresh air. So so what I would recommend for Canadian houses, for instance, may not be at all what's recommended for um, American houses, particularly in, in the middle or south of it. So in, in the big bypasses of what you look for, um, so anything where there's a, a chimney chase or drop ceiling, that sort of thing, and the, um, in Canadian houses, the next big leaky area would probably be the uh, sill header area uh, along the basement, um, and um, between the first and second floor, if it exists, and any attic bypasses uh, that happen, so to the top of partition walls and such, and then you get into the, the tinier stuff, where you just have to go after crack after crack, you know, around windows, doors, baseboards, that sort of thing.
3: Okay, and now I, I understand you're retiring from your current position at the CMHC Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. I think I have that right. Can you, you tell us a little bit about what your primary duties have been over the years at at CMHC? And am, am I correct in assuming you are retiring from there?
1: I am retiring on um, uh, the first week of March. Um, what I worked in various divisions. um the names changed, but essentially I was doing the same job for 25 years. And I had the same telephone number and the same desk. I, I, that's pretty that's pretty unusual, I think, just the image. But I was doing research. I was managing research projects. And for me, particularly, it was a great job because if you ever got jo- bored at a research job, it's your own fault. We had the opportunity to to identify which areas of research were important for Canadian home builders or homeowners or the government and to work on that and to find problems and uh, possibilities and um, and to do the research until we got solutions. So uh, in, at various times we did different types of work. I started and I did two or three years right away on combustion spillage issues before house air tightness and house depressurization and chimney spillage and backdrafting was recognized anywhere in North America as a real problem. So we we established that, you know, what the parameters were, how to test for it, what sort of risks there were in terms of air quality. And then I moved into the rest of the house. I did a lot of work on basement, foundation, uh, uh, and then I worked in attics and in terms of ventilation rates in attics, I did a lot of work on the house ventilation, uh, how it's done either naturally or with mechanical systems and um, a fair bit of work on um, energy reductions in, in both new and existing houses, how to do that effectively. And then, you know, peculiar stuff like uh, I, I did a fair bit of research on straw bale houses, and hemp and uh, number of others like that which and it was a possibility and um because the the research was interesting no one else was doing it 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 made sense for CMHC to do it
3: well out of all the numerous items you've researched and and things you've done at, at CMHC what which of those accomplishments or which research projects or what uh, what are you most proud of with respect to your last 25 years at CMHC?
1: Um, I think the biggest accomplishment I've seen with the uh, researchers in, in our division in the last 25 years was when I joined. We did we were doing um, technical research projects, very interesting and um, innovative stuff, but it was never published. It was or it was rarely published, and you know our. our file copy might go into our library sort of thing. Whereas um, now uh, we have a number of ways that the results are published and, and a lot of people know about it. So we have an About Your House series, which is summaries of the research findings for homeowners They're written in a style that they can comprehend. We have the Research Highlight Series, which is summaries of each of the research reports that we've done, and it's a little more technical than about your house. And we have all this available on websites, and that's been a huge change in the 25 years. So you can download the whole report or download the summary or just cruise through the website and see what you like. So the information that we um, produced is now getting out and... A lot of people know about it, and a lot of people use CMHC as housing information. You know,
3: I warn listeners before you go to the website, make sure you have plenty of time if you're like me and you enjoy reading about uh, building science issues, and and even if you are interested in learning about some things within your own home, uh, there's some. Excellent, excellent materials on there, and, and you deserve a lot of credit. And the people at CMHC deserve a lot of credit, Don. There's great information on there. Thanks, sir.
0: Don, Don, I've got a first, couple. Yeah, I've, I've got a couple things. You used a term. First of all, combustion spillage. Uh, can you tell the listeners what combustion spillage is?
1: Combustion spillage is um, generally found in houses with chimneys. So you have a combustion device like a furnace or a water heater. Um, venting through a chimney and the combustion spillage would be when the chimney fails to evacuate the products of combustion so you what you get particles and smoke and carbon monoxide and whatever nice oxides and nitrogen every all these things that come from the combustion process instead of them being safely evacuated to the outside by the chimney they are dumped into the house if you're backdrafting a chimney so that the flow in the chimney is going down instead of up as it should be, then the device is firing against the flow that is coming into the house, and quite often it can't turn that flow around. So you, if you set up a backdraft, say you have a powerful kitchen fan that sucks a lot of, you know, say, 500 CFM out of the house, the house is of a certain tightness, and your chimney becomes your air supply to the house. So, so while that kitchen fan is on, if the furnace fires up against the backflow down the chimney, it won't turn that backflow around. And so then your furnace is dumping all the products of its combustion into the house. If the furnace is burning cleanly and there's a lot of air around it, it's probably not gonna, you're not going to notice unless you're down there looking at your furnace for some obscure reason. But, you know, you won't, you won't have a health situation. But if your furnace is in, a, in an area where it has to re-ingest its own products of combustion or if your furnace is out of tune and producing a lot of, a lot of carbon monoxide, these sort of situations can lead to uh, health problems, air quality problems. Gotcha. So those are, that's the essence of combustion spillage. We looked at things like chimney blockage, uh, chimney design, chimney maintenance, and, and also the interaction of the chimney, the house, and the exhaust appliances in the house, how they all compete, and how to keep chimneys
0: functioning properly don this research that was done by uh you know cmhc what happens to it you know like let's say that you come up with some great idea for a product you come up with the great solution what happens you know to those ideas does your organization uh, commercialize them do you patent them do you license them to others uh, do you just give it away for free you know what happens
1: Um, Well, a couple of things. There were um, a couple of technical products. So spillage indicators, spillage alarms, um, fireplace alarms, that sort of thing. Fireplace pillows that uh, would block an empty fireplace so you wouldn't get that sooty smell when you had a fan on and the fireplace wasn't in use. These things were generally proposed by individuals or firms, and we supported them to an extent. And if they could make a commercial product out of it, and some did then that's completely up to them. We just publish a research report saying this is what we tested and what do you know what works, you know? Um, but the other things we did, for instance, developing a venting systems test or spillage test, um, we would put that into, as much as we could, into some sort of standards organization and run it through the standards process and then try and integrate it into building codes and uh, appliance standards. And it is curious that that work that we did on combustion spillage, depressurization, depressurization limits, it's been accepted by by the weatherization industry, by the housing industry for at least 20 years. And we are still trying to get that through Canadian codes committees, and our prime opposition is from American appliance manufacturers who do not want to admit that houses may be depressurized. And while they say our perfect solution is a uh, pressure-neutral house, we say, you're right, and we wouldn't have combustion silage problems in a pressure-neutral house, but the houses are not. Here's the proof So we have to do something to defend chimneys against depressurization, and uh, they are in refusal to acknowledge that.
3: Hmm. I'm curious, Don, it sounds like this uh, kind of leads into this question, uh, The International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate, they do a lot of research on indoor air quality issues. And I know their conference this year, their theme is like taking research and and getting it into practice. What were some of the things that you've been able to do at CMHC to get the research you've done actually being used in the field?
1: Um, It's funny that the means of getting our research integrated into housing or, or renovation has been, to a large degree, we used American sources. The uh, Affordable Comfort Conference, the weatherization industry, the manufacturers and distributors of equipment have been just as apt or more apt than Canadian people to take our research and run with it. And that has been uh, really gratifying. It, um, you know, we'll take any way that we can to to um, get our the research findings into uh, a place that w- they will help the public. Um, we do a we do a lot of writing. We do a lot of magazine articles, and like I said, code stuff. And we sit on building codes and stuff and try and make changes so the, this research gets into place. Um, but. Uh, it, like I said, often the most effective means of transfer is you get it with the right trainer or whoever down in the States, and bang, everyone that they train knows how to do it. And then, curiously, the American training program often comes north, and people say, oh, that looks interesting, let's adopt that. So, <laughs> we taught them how to do that, and now it's not accepted until it comes back from the U.S. It's, it's, uh, anyhow, that's that's the means. Um we, we have done a lot of publications. We've worked with a lot of different interest groups. So we've worked uh, with builders. We've worked with renovators. We've worked with um, mechanical systems um, people. Uh, we've worked with uh, groups like the, um, the hypersensitive, uh, for instance. We did a fair number of research projects on housing for the hypersensitive, what it took, what it took in terms of products. How to build houses or adapt houses so that people with hypersensitivity, that um, like chemicals hypersensitivity could could live in those houses comfortably. So, a, a variety of different ways of conveying the information to the different audiences.
3: Cliff, did you have anything? Do you want, want me to keep going?
0: No, go ahead, Joe.
3: That's fine. I, I, I'll I've jump got in. a bunch here.
0: <laughs> uh Bon, if
3: you had unlimited budget and uh, resources, what would you focus the work at CMHC on now?
1: Okay, I I personally think that climate change, peak and peak oil, among other things, are, are going to be major factors. Um If they're already not. For instance, um, the places that are most affected by climate change right now are in the far north in Canada, where temperatures have changed by 10 or 20 degrees Fahrenheit over the course of the last 20 years. So people who are in denial about climate change, they don't have to, you know, if they go up there, uh, their whole life has changed because the climate is considerably warmer than it ever has been historically. So I feel that we should be making the effort, and I know that that's a hard thing to sell. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of concentration. It seems like responding to a sort of Cassandra-like group who think that the world's ending, blah, blah, blah. But to me, if I had lots of money and I had any influence on government policy and, and the way people spend money is... I would like to see existing houses brought down to near zero energy usage and to have those houses more comfortable and safer from an Iq perspective than they were before the renovation started. I I think that's uh, that's where we should be heading. I I appreciate all the work being done on new houses, but existing houses represent our biggest area of uh, possible gains. And they, it's still not clear how you deal with all these issues in existing housing. So, from an IAQ perspective, say that um, say that you're doing extensive renovations in in um, houses. How do you deal with the fact that older houses often have asbestos integrated into the plaster? How do you deal with the asbestos from zone light insulation in the attic? How do you deal with the leaded paint? How do you deal with these these health issues when you're doing a renovation without blowing your budget completely on health issues rather than doing the energy-related work? How do you do that balance? How do you make sure that you harm as few people as possible while, uh, while making these houses as efficient as possible? How do you deal with things like the electrical implications, the electromagnetic fields if you're running electricity on your roof and running it down, you know? There's a whole bunch of things which are still unknown or unspecified, and I would think um, you could spend a lifetime, uh, certainly two or three decades of work, pushing that particular agenda, how to make older houses healthy and way more energy efficient so they are not a major contributor to climate change, so they are not using a lot of those fuels that are going to supply.
3: You know, Don, we we probably have to go to halftime in a moment, but I want to, before we do, kind of introduce listeners to some of the topics that we'd like to discuss with you during the second half. And one is the equilibrium program of net zero houses and how that is evolving. And I guess I'll start with a quick question: that is that program primarily for new construction or does it also include some renovation of existing homes like you just mentioned
1: it's primarily new construction but there were it was one of the initial houses that was an existing 1946 house and there have been a couple of other examples where they've piggybacked off that work and done some more so we can we can talk about that and and what the implications are
0: Okay,
3: great. Cliff, do you want, do you want to go to halftime, or do you want to have another question?
0: No, let's just go to halftime,
3: Joe.
2: It's time.
0: Great.
2: All right. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association. NADCA is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
0: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org.
2: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test
0: instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com.
2: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
0: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at John johndon.com.
2: And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at com and cmmonline.com.
0: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay.
3: All right, so we're back with Don Fuger from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And, Don, we were talking before the halftime break about the Equilibrium Program, and I just wanted to, uh, for the listeners that haven't been on the website, haven't had a chance to look at this, maybe you could tell them a little bit about the goal of that program and how many homes are involved in the program.
1: Okay, the Equilibrium Program by CMHC is... net-zero housing program with some other aspects that relate to the CMHC's healthy housing initiative. So the houses have to be environmentally sound, they have to be um, have good air quality and, you know, be a good place to live. Um, affordability is one of our goals, so I have to say that's probably not the most uh, attained goal in our equilibrium program. Um, so uh, they are net-zero houses you get down to it. If you're going to build a net zero house, the least expensive way to do it, the most cost effective way, is to make a great envelope. So you have houses with like R50 walls, R60 walls, R80 attic insulation, R20, R30 foundation. So, I mean, really, really well insulated houses, houses that are equivalent to the passive house. Um, houses that you know have been built in Europe and are starting to be built in North America. And then what you do is you add um, energy generation, so uh, solar thermal, um, so solar water heating, and then some sort of space heating through the same system, and solar electric, photovoltaic. And the houses typically have fairly big systems in the order of uh, 4 kilowatt to Eight or nine kilowatt uh, uh, photovoltaic systems on the roof.
0: Don, can you speak up a little the, bit?
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, we're hoping that these houses, uh, when all, you know, when lived in and tested, that these houses will be, uh, you know, healthy to live in and use near zero energy or net zero energy. They'll produce as much energy as they use. And this is a uh, this is quite uh, quite a challenge. And, and I know there are net zero houses that have, you know certified net zero houses, houses that obtain net zero in the U.S. But for instance, I think I could take my old 1946 brick uh, story and a half and dump it in you know southern Tennessee and come close to net zero because because. because What uh, you know again in some climate areas in the colder climates it's far harder to meet net zero. You have far more heating required, both for the uh, space heating and the water heating. Um, Um, We have about 15 houses. There have been offshoots by the contractors on you know the next generations of houses, and that's been uh, that has been good. Uh, You know, it's it's been there's been a good evolution of the technology.
3: No, I, I understand that the the cost component may not be your, you know, your area of expertise. But I'm just curious. Can you give us a ballpark idea of what the additional cost for building one of these equilibrium homes is versus a, a typical home?
1: Yeah, ballpark is is what you'd get. Um, all these houses, we didn't we didn't put money into supporting these houses to be built. We uh, provided the builder developers with some money for reporting and monitoring, um, but essentially they had to build these houses and sell them, and, uh, and then we are monitoring these houses when the homeowners are in them for their first year. So affordability is an aspect, so we, if the builder builds too rich, he's going to have to eat that because the homeowners are not going to buy them if they're absurdly expensive. That being said, these are the builder's first try at anything that's ambitious, so you're going to get inefficiencies. Like I said, there's at least one builder in Edmonton who is now on his fourth or fifth generation house uh, of the same type, uh, not equilibrium but net zero, and and um, I think he's cut his costs by uh, maybe by 40, 50 percent over the equilibrium house built for CMHC. Uh, as a rough example, I would say that um, the Now House, which was the bung- a story and a half house in Toronto in the late 40s, so this is the only renovation, that one costs uh, about eighty or 90000 ostensibly, but if you included all the donations from different suppliers and stuff, it was probably up in the order of $140,000. Uh, the market housing, the new housing being built, um, I would say the upgrades are typically in the range of $100,000 to 200000 in, in construction costs, uh, in part because, um, well, this is before there, there are no government subsidies for the purchase of PV systems, so you're paying the whole shot. And since these houses have been built, the cost of PV has gone down by about 30%, so uh, probably the major expense on top of typical good building is the installation of a PV system. And if it's going to cost you sixty thousand dollars, and it drops by thirty percent, you're now down to forty and change. So these are, uh, these are these are still big systems, and they're still on the front line. They're they're houses that, that are pushing the boundaries.
0: Don, can you, you you use this abbreviation PV? Could you tell the listeners what it is?
1: PV is just, sorry, it's a photovoltaic system, so um, modules, electricity modules on your roof um, which send the uh, solar electricity to an inverter and then it's, um, I think in every house in the equilibrium program it is uh, grid inner tide, so you get a credit. For the electricity you produce, if you use more or if you produce more than you're using in the house, it, uh, it flows back to the utility and they give you a credit. The credit ranges from about four or five cents to, in Ontario, it's uh, 80 cents right now um, under the current program. So, um, for instance, at NOW House in Toronto, even though the PV system isn't very big, I think it's about a 2.7 kilowatt system on a small house. Um, because they are locked into an 80.2-cent-a-kilowatt-hour contract with the uh, with the utility, they will certainly be net-zero energy costs. The amount that they get from producing electricity on that small system will equal the heating and electricity costs for the rest of the house.
3: Uh, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that the that smaller system and i i know there was another project i think it was the avalon that had a bigger uh, i think it was an 8.3 kilowatt system and that you've kind of mentioned in our earlier discussions that one didn't seem to be as productive as some of the smaller systems is there some reason that you can talk to us about why that is happening
1: sure And, and this is why this is why we do this research because these are these are not things that we were anticipating. So the Avalon, the Avalon house is an excellent house by a great builder, and um, it's one of the few that have finished 12 months of monitoring with occupants, and it it used a little bit of energy. It didn't quite make its net zero. It's probably the most energy efficient house in terms of uh, net energy usage in Canadian history, but it didn't hit it's net zero target. Part of the reason, it had a 0.3, 8.3 kilowatt system on the roof. Um, for um, design reasons, they put a gable in the middle of the roof, and the uh, PV system was on either side of the gable, on the um, the gable roof itself, and on the attached garage, which was at a slightly lower level than the rest of the house. And what you found, there was these there were two equilibrium houses in the town of the city of Red Deer, Alberta. Um, the Avalon House with an 8.3 system and the um, Chess House with a, a 6.7 kilowatt system. The Chess House, if you look at the system, it's on a, a south-facing you know, side of a roof, and there's no obstructions whatsoever. And... That 6.7 kilowatt system was outproducing the Avalon 8.3 kilowatt system simply because of shading. The other, it, there's a bit of shade from the uh, from the main house roof to the garage part. There's a bit of shade from the dormer they put up to the side. So just those little bits of shading um, meant the difference. They had predicted far better. Um, uh, output from the Avalon system than they actually found, and it was because the programs doing the prediction are not as good at dealing with shading as they thought. A whole other PV system problem is snow, and one would think that in Canada we had recognized that there's snow in the winter, <laughs> and that if you put snow on top of a PV system, it's not going to do a lot of generation. I have I have a PV system on my own house, a small one, and it's been under snow. Up until today, and now we're starting to produce again because it's so warm outside. Anyhow, these systems, or a lot of these systems, were they, they were at 45 degrees or more. So very steep systems, and everyone anticipated that on 45-degree glass, the snow would slip right off. And what we're finding is that there's lots of times that the snow sticks. So while you anticipate you know, production right through the winter. If you have snow on your panels for several weeks, bang, you're you're out of luck.
3: Interesting, Cliff. I know there was a disaster restoration project that Don worked on. I didn't know if you wanted to ask about that one or not. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about uh, your experience with the snow and ice. And well,
1: the yeah, uh, the problem, the uh, research program. It was sort of exciting in 1998. There was the ice storm that hit Eastern Canada and the U.S., and uh, a lot of power failures, some great swatches of of, um, Ontario and Quebec and I guess New York, for that matter, were without power for weeks on end. And the ice, the freezing rain came down so hard that you had up to mm, five or six inches of ice on roofs, which were not designed for that sort of weight. When we saw this happening, it was at a period where we got uh, management approval for launching some quick projects and bang we did you know I think we the fastest I've ever done we created a project, had a telephone proposal call, and wrote a contract and got it sent out to the people all in the same day you know it was like you know if you have these this sort of pressing urgency you cannot go through standard bureaucratic processes that uh you know that we do all the other time anyhow so we did several projects uh, one was how to remove ice from roofs um which were at risk and and we have uh, photographs of people up on flat roofs chainsawing ice off the roof you know and we had tales of people going up there and uh, the ice and snow with you know snow blowers and running their snow blowers right off the roof and following it all this sort of stuff. But we did a lot of work on uh you know whether you could use salts to to melt the ice, the accumulated ice, whether you could use uh, sprayed hot water to melt the ice and if so what sort of sequence you had to use, um whether you could use you know electrical cables, whether the standard electrical cables for ice damming would make a difference. Um you know when a roof was at risk and not. We also did a fair bit of work all in these two or three weeks of the ice storm, how to leave your house and leave it in a condition so that when you came back when the power was on a week or two later that your house wasn't trashed. So, you know, how to deal with water, how to deal with um, ventilation, how to deal with protection of your house. We dealt with... uh, a lot of air quality issues with people running generators or older wood stoves or fireplaces that were not designed for continuous usage and how to avoid burning your house down while you're trying to save yourself or poison yourself with carbon monoxide. And finally, one of the more interesting projects we did at the time was, um, there was a swatch, I, I, I think it was called the Dark Triangle, sort of uh, east southeast of Montreal and um, and the whole place is out, out of power. And um, there were people, I guess the police, um, were inspecting houses along, you know, on a daily basis. So we sent uh, a, a researcher along, and he went every house and shot all the walls with a, uh, with a infrared thermometer and took the temperatures And uh, in these 30 houses that had been abandoned and without power for... Or, uh, a week or two I guess at the time and all every house was still above freezing of these 30 houses and the average temperature had gone down uh, I'm dealing with Celsius but uh, let me see if I can do the Fahrenheit translation it went down to about minus 5 Fahrenheit but the average temperature over that period that we monitored was say 20 degrees Fahrenheit but none of the houses had yet dropped below zero a week or two after the ice storm and so we so it it was a really good indicator that's on that details on our website as well under research highlights but it's a really good indicator of how the thermal mass of houses means that you don't drop to below freezing temperatures uh, you know very quickly in a house like it takes days if not weeks to get down there as long as the temperatures are are not Unreasonably cold
3: outside. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious, Don. What was the best way to remove ice? We're we're getting a lot of ice. You know, it's warmed up here recently, but we're getting quite a bit of ice over the winter. What What is the best way to remove ice from your your roof or from ice damming?
1: Um. Well, the the best way to avoid ice damming, we've talked about that in the the, about your house documents. You, you know, you have. Have, you avoid air leakage to the, to the attic and you uh, insulate properly. But once you, if you have the ice up there, um, we talked about uh, using the de-icing cables and putting them up there loosely, you know, with long sticks, and they'll just cut through the ice, and you can avoid the worst of the damage by doing that. In fact, you can move the cables around as, as they cut through the ice if you have some sort of portability aspect. Um, the hot water work... Fine too, but what you had to do is you had to clear the gutter first, your downspout, and then work your way along the the uh, along the gutter and make sure it's clear, and then start melting it at the lower end of the roof, because the hot water is going to result in a lot of water flowing from the roof of the house, and you want to make sure that it didn't flood flood the roof at that point. There was a, another danger that I encountered, and others did as well, is uh, when you have a lot of ice on for ice dam. And you you take the stuff off the bottom. Sometimes the whole top comes down like an avalanche. Uh, for instance, I had taken away an ice dam uh, with it, with various methods on a ladder, taking my ladder down, and you know, 10 or 20 seconds later, the whole roof came down. It would have taken me and my ladder for a ride across the yard. You know, it was uh, you have to watch that that ice, that accumulation of snow and ice, is, is holding up. Residualize, and and you can provoke an avalanche quite dangerous.
0: What was your findings oh, with oh. the salt, Don, on the roofs?
1: The, you had to use um, non-corrosive salt. We were using um, different salts, and then we were using urea, okay. uh, which is you know, out of animal feed, I think it was. Um, mm-hmm. We found that it worked, but it didn't work that quickly. We tried putting black plastic on to... To increase the uh, the heat during sunny periods, neither one was as effective as uh, uh, as the using the, the cables, the icing cables, gotcha. or the hot water.
3: Now how did you? I'm curious. How did you get to the hot water? I mean, how, what was the mechanism for getting it hot? Did
1: you? Oh no, you would just hook it up to your laundry tub downstairs, assuming you had power. And just run a hose outside and start working at it with a you know from a hose you must just
3: work on it from the bottom and work your way up i yeah. guess
1: exactly great those are
3: great tips for for listeners i'm glad glad we asked
0: these questions actually uh,
3: Cliff, is there, do you want to go to the roundup, or did you want to put one more question? Well, I, wanted, to go to I, I wanted
0: to to put out there the straw bale house construction. Um, exactly uh, what is a straw bale, and how would they build a house out of it, and what parts of a house would you build out of it?
1: You build the walls out of straw bale. Um, just a second. I'm going to change my phone here. The, um, the walls... Uh, you you put the straw bales together like big bricks, and then you plaster either side with, uh, with stucco, cement okay. stucco or lime plasters and that sort of thing.
3: How um, thick? How thick are these walls,
0: Don?
1: Eighteen inches.
0: Okay. And would this be designed for out in the prairie uh, areas of Canada? You know, or? They... Oh no,
1: it's all through North America, and it's all through. Um, it's all through the world. There's a lot of straw bale building in France and England, and I know some Americans have taken it over to uh, Tibet, for instance, and Mongolia. So there is straw bale building that has been going over the last 20 years throughout the world in colder climates. Mm-hmm. We don't recommend straw bale for, for warm, wet climates, for instance, too much risk.
0: Does it work? Pardon me? Did, you know, was it successful? Did, does it work?
1: Yeah, straw bale works. It uh, You can make a decent wall out of straw bale. You can make a good-looking house out of straw bale. Um, the houses that are built properly with good attention to details do not get into moisture problems. I think part of the problem that was happening initially with straw bale was that a lot of this is owner-builders. Um, they didn't complete the houses or they had little experience, for instance. And they didn't understand the details that would keep the water out of the straw, or that didn't seem important to them at the time, or they ascribed straw with magical water-shedding properties, and it doesn't. If straw gets wet, it rots. We know that. We've looked into older, some of the older straw bales constructions, and if it's wet, it's, it's, you've got rotten straw, in the same way that if you had a 2x4 wall, your 2x4s would be rotting out in that same environment. So if you build it properly and you deal with the water and it sheds water and doesn't hold the water in the wall, the straw bale works fine as insulation, thermal mass, and as a you know a place to put your finish on. So I I think it's a it's a good technology for for a number of people, especially if you live near where there's lots of uh, inexpensive
0: straw. You know, driving around in, in rural Pennsylvania, you know, Joe and I will see, uh, you know, where the farmers has gone in and they've, uh, you know, plowed the fields and, you know, we see these huge straw bales that are out, and they tend to shrink wrap them, you know, with some sort of plastic uh, material. Uh, would that be a benefit or not be a benefit in terms of, you know, building a straw bale house and uh, shrink wrapping the bales?
1: No, I think uh, you, you're probably talking about hay bales.
0: Okay.
1: And I mean, hay. Hay is rots a lot faster than straw because hay okay. is a lot more. The straw is like the stem, okay. and and uh, okay. is is more resistant to rot because it doesn't have as many nutrients for mold, for instance. The the wrapping is to preserve the hay. Um, people have tried individually wrapped straw, but it hasn't worked so well. So. Like I said, they now dry stack them and, and um, butter the sides with stucco and, and call it out.
3: Mm-hmm. How do you build your your walls and, and, you know, what do you attach to? I mean, it seems like you would have a little problem finding something structural to attach to, or do you just build a wall inside of the straw bale?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's funny, eh? Well, that's one reason that we got into straw bale construction was that all these sort of building science and practical questions came up fresh. It was a completely new building technology, and we had to resolve it. There are two types of straw bale construction generally. One is the straw itself, or the straw bale walls with the stucco on it, are support the roof. So that's a low-bearing straw bale house. And the other is it has a structure, usually wooden or metal framing, and uh, the straw is used uh, for the insulation and for the finishing. But the structural loads are carried by, you know, either, you know, wood posts or 2x4s or 2x3s or whatever they're using. That's called posts and beams job,
3: Very interesting. Don, Cliff, do you want to go to the up? Sure, absolutely.
2: Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move him on, hit him up, raw, high. Cut them out, ride him in, ride him in, let them out, cut him out, ride them in, raw,
0: On. I'll take the first question. Um, if you had a do-over uh, in your career at CMHC, what would it be?
1: A do-over,
0: or like a mulligan, like I if think, you're playing golf. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, I know exactly. I think I would have paid more attention to getting our findings into peer-reviewed journals. Um, it, I, I, our research is good, and it's generally well done, and it's. It's very objective. The beauty of working for government research is you don't have an agenda. You're pushing. You're not pushing a product. You're not trying to prove that your way is best. You let the chips fall where they may. If you know, so you say straw bales construction works. It's not because you own a farm and sell straw. You know, it's just you're trying to give objective information. So we've always just published our stuff and got it out there. But there are a number of agencies and academics and everyone else who says. Unless it's in a peer-reviewed journal, it has no credibility. And so, for instance, we have studies which are far better than anything in a peer-reviewed journal, but they're not cited or they're not recognized because people uh, are used to that mechanism of finding credible information and uh, give little credibility to government agencies that publish their
3: own. I've got two quick questions to finish things up. I, I hope they're quick, but we'll find out. The, the first one, I, I want to go back to the Equilibrium project uh, just, just briefly here. And, and I'm curious, I, I leafed through, I'll guess, four of the projects. I didn't get a chance to look at all of them. It seemed like all the ones I looked at at least depended on passive solar and or active solar in combination. I didn't notice any that used wind, uh, any kind of wind turbines, are there any that are using wind? Is there a reason why they're not using wind if they're not?
1: No, wind was totally acceptable at the application level, but because most of the houses were by uh, market builders and they were in suburban areas, the wind wasn't usually acceptable to the neighbors, as it were. Um, but we had no trouble with using wind or, or other alternatives like uh, small hydro or something like that. It was all possible within the application process. It's just the builders who chose to apply and who were the winning builders uh, all were in more residential areas.
3: I see. and And can you comment on how effect of the passive solar was versus the active solar or, or the combination of the two. I assume the two combined, would it would seem, would be the best. But I'm just curious, uh, does passive solar assist a great deal with helping a home become that zero?
1: Yes. In fact, when the houses were being built, we heard tales of, you know, it'd be minus 20 outside or, sorry, you know, around zero Fahrenheit outside. And this house would have no heating in it. And But the, the envelope would be completed and they'd be sitting there at, uh, you know, 60, 70 degrees inside in the, when the sun was out, you know. And, and even after that, because the houses held their heat so well. So passive solar is a huge factor and, and has to be encouraged. Conversely, the active solar, so the solar thermal, the solar water heating and the solar space heating, um hasn't been as successful as we hoped. And uh, I think some of that may be the first-year problems. They've got to sort out control strategies and such, and maybe it'd be better to monitor them in the second year rather than the first year. But the first-year results that we've seen so far have not been up to prediction in most of the houses.
3: Well, i I tell you, it's been a fascinating interview. We really appreciate you joining us and, um, you know, reflecting back on your years at CMHC and imparting some of your knowledge to our listeners. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add that we missed? And uh, good luck in your future endeavors.
1: Thank you. Um, No, I just, like I, when I first started, indoor air quality was a very new area. And uh, there was a lot of growth in indoor air quality related research and publications and, and such. It's uh, it's sort of plateaued since then, but I, it's reassuring to me that there are people like yourselves, uh, you know, training and uh, doing this IAQ radio and doing this tech transfer so that indoor air quality is now one of the things that we consider a necessity. It's a it's a known, it's a given. You don't go into a house and screw up the indoor air quality because we know what the repercussions are now and we know how to deal with a lot of the uh major problems. so I'm I find this I find it neat that we've you know advanced to this stage
3: we do too we again appreciate you joining us and Cliff if you want to do the sign-off I appreciate you uh, letting me participate remotely here and uh, get a chance to chat with Don
0: no problem Uh, before I do that we have a text question Don uh, that a listener uh, sent in Uh, the text question is if the house-as-a-system concept was reached early, why do you think that it never became integrated into the training?
1: I I think that it has been integrated, but not into, uh, for instance, weatherization. House-as-a-system is so common now that um, it's boring to teach to a certain degree because everyone recognizes it. Where the we've seen resistance has been... Um from the appliance manufacturers and distributors and uh to a certain degree from architects who who um you know shy away from some of the building science questions you know so if they in, we've we've had success in in with some groups and some stakeholders and in others it's going to take longer, but inevitably people are going to be uh cognizant of is the system Factors and, and how they have to uh, deal with it in in design and operation of houses.
0: Okay, well, thank you for that answer. Uh, before I go, for I'd like to thank you, Don Fugler, for being our guest today. Uh, thank our co-host uh, Joe Hughes Would like to thank our engineer Austin Stone called Novak. But most importantly, we want to thank our growing group of loyal ieq radio listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for our next broadcast of. IAQ Radio. Well, at least I'm home. This has been another IAQ Radio production.